I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Thank Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers and, of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows your best. Better call daddy cause he's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees Political guilt by association is real. Today, I'm talking to Sal Greco. He was a decorated NYPD officer for 14 years, and he got let go simply from being associated with Roger Stone. My dad says he knows what it's like to be railroaded. Sal, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. How is today going for you? It's good. It's just I'm getting all kinds of like phone goes off the hook. You know, I always get things. Yeah. In regards to this case. So it's like one thing after the other. All right. Well, you led me in with that. Talk to me about this case. Yeah. Obviously, for everyone out there, I was an NYPD officer for 14 years. I had an unblemished record. I have over 50 medals. I have nothing nefarious on my record. Along the way, somebody became irked. I was a friend of Roger Stone's. Therefore, they started a 19th month witch hunt on me. I had to endure two interrogations. I had to go through the department trial. I also was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. Ultimately, they terminated me in August of last year. And that's when I turned around and sued him. And as of just two weeks ago, the judge allowed this case to proceed forward. So that's where we're at. By next month, the city has to figure out if they're going to indemnify all four people, which were the two internal affairs supervisors that were investigating me. That would be the sergeant and lieutenant, the deputy commissioner of legal affairs at that time, and the police commissioner at that time as well. Sounds like you've said that one or two times before. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whoa. It's just a lot. It's just a lot. So what they terminated me for saying with Roger, in the New York City Police Department, we have a patrol guide. The patrol guide is a rule book, and these are the rules that everyone has to follow. That is including the police commissioner and down all the ranks. They must follow these rules. So the rule that they were hung up on with me is there's this patrol guide procedure that states you cannot wrongfully or knowingly associate with someone who is reasonably believed to have engaged in or likely to have engaged in criminal activity. Remember how this is framed. I mean, it sounds like a very broad brush. So they're stating that this person for me was Roger Stone, one of his employees, and they try to drag a bunch of other people that at the end had nothing to do with anything of this. But that's what they're stating to me. Because I'm friends with Roger Stone, therefore that makes me viable under this rule that they're saying I violated. But here is the problem, Rena. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, he was a police captain in the NYPD. He went 22 years. He himself... Very recently, in a New Yorker, again, a New Yorker, wrote an article about him. He states that he was a bodyguard and he was security for Mike Tyson, where he was investigated for this. He was also the same for Louis Farrakhan. Two convicted criminals, two people who are likely to have engaged in criminal activity. Then there's another article that came out just this weekend from Politico. Eric Adams was bodyguard and friend of the Reverend Al Sharpton, who in 1993 pled guilty to tax evasion, likely to have engaged in criminal activity. Eric Adams himself was investigated for this, but yet there were no vacation days taken. There was no termination for this. So how could it be that Eric Adams is being treated different than Sal Greco? And then there's more 
stuff going on where the police commissioner of the NYPD right now, Ed Caban, who's been on the job for 30 years, his brother James was a sergeant on the job. He was arrested. He lost the NYPD job. They terminated him. And then later on, he was arrested again because they nicknamed him the slumlord of the Bronx. So is that not likely to have engaged in criminal activity? There's this place in the Bronx. It's called Consofritos. That's what my phone keeps ringing off the hook. Consofritos in the Bronx. The owner of the place is Jimmy Cafe. His name is Jimmy Cafe. Why you call him Jimmy Cafe? Well, a few years ago, this guy named Jimmy Rodriguez Jr. owned a place called Jimmy's Cafe. Now, what's this place infamous for? Many years ago, there was an incident with Fat Joe in the Bronx where there was a shooting. That's what, exactly where it happened with Jimmy's Cafe. Jimmy Rodriguez Jr. also in the late 90s tried to run over his wife and was arrested for that, okay? Likely to have engaged in criminal activity. Now, he owns this place, Fritos. He's called Jimmy Cafe. On YouTube, and you can find it on my Twitter feed, at the South Greco, one of my tweets out there was a YouTube podcast where these two gentlemen were discussing Concefrito, or actually Jimmy Cafe, stating that back in the day when this place was open, it was known to have a cocaine buffet with cocaine in the bathroom for celebrities, baseball players, and whoever else was friends with this guy. So now you have a place that should be an unlawful location also for NYPD officers. But yet they're all there. All these guys that associate with Caban and Eric Adams and friends of Eric's, they're all there. They're all hanging out together. There's pictures all over the place, but there's a few pictures that matter. And if you go through the timeline, this isn't something where we'll say it's by chance. This isn't like what they try to do to me. They try to take January 5th when I was in D.C. with Roger at two legally permitted events where nothing nefarious happened and numerous other pictures of me with Roger out in public over the last couple of years and try to introduce us as Sal Greco is doing something wrong because he's friends with Roger. These pictures of Concertfritos have the owner, Jimmy Cafe, Ed Caban, Eric Adams, and James Caban all over their pictures. They're all over the place in pictures, meaning there's a timeline. This isn't just by chance. So the police officer himself, Ed Caban, as the police commissioner, should be terminated, much like Keyshawn Sewell, who's on my lawsuit, should have been terminated for allowing Cardi B to come to the police academy and associate with numerous officers. Violating the very rule you terminated me for. Because there can't be one rule for Eric and another rule for everybody else. So how is it that Ed Caban still has his job at the NYPD? How is he still the police commissioner? He's associating with known criminals. He's known, reasonably believed to have engaged in, elected to have engaged in criminal activity. Not to mention, what I just found out here is his other brother, Rich, is one of the owners, if not the main owner of Fritos. So the Cabans own the place that's known to have drugs and associate with criminals. How does this work? How does all of this work? How you does it me? work? How can they get away with it? What have you I learned? I guess because they don't support uh, President Trump, maybe. That's what it is. I don't know. Because that's why they clearly came after me for it's all political. But you can't have two sets of rules, Rena. That's the problem here. They were saying it was uncompensated security, whatever that means. Uncompensated security. Your mayor was security. He literally was security for three separate people that were criminals or likely to have engaged in criminal activity. So how does these rules being applied, how does this work? Rena, you tell me. Sounds like rules are made to be broken to me. And it's crazy and insane because people, I see everybody out there, oh, a police commissioner, the great NYPD. All, all I see with the NYPD is it's being run by people that have no idea what they're doing because they're too busy hanging out at this place. Or they associate with criminals themselves because the police commissioner is at this place hanging out with these people. The mayor is there. His right-hand man, Timothy Pearson, retired from the NYPD. He's another Mr. Wonderful. This guy retired in a puff of smoke in the early 2000s. He was under investigation. Philip Banks, the deputy mayor of public safety, this guy was the chief of the department of the NYPD, and he was infamously known as the unindicted co-conspirator from a case years ago that involved a bunch of donors that belonged to Bill de Blasio, and they were on an infamous airplane ride to Vegas where apparently there were prostitutes and money going around. But Philip Banks never was indicted for it. He was an unindicted co-conspirator though. So he's likely to have engaged in criminal activity. Yet somehow he has an office at one police plaza and he's delegating 
to the police commissioner how to do his business in the NYPD. How is this all work? Of course, it only goes back to one person, Mayor Eric Adams. That's crazy. It sounds like things have changed since you started your career in law enforcement. Oh, definitely. Talk about that. I was a cop for 14 years. I started in Crown Heights, and this was under Ray Kelly was a police commissioner, and Joseph Esposito was the chief of department. And back then, in broken windows was very big. It was implemented in a, in a certain way. So we went to high crime areas. You stood on a foot post, and look, this stop questioning first stuff, some people used it and took it to another level where it shouldn't have been. Some people used it effectively. I was in the middle. I wasn't a big, you know, stop questioning first guy. I was a big right see summonses. So if you were drinking in the street at that time, yes, I would stop you. If you were in a park after dark, yes, I would stop you. If you jumped over a turnstile, you didn't pay the fare, fare evasion, I would stop. See, these are things that are small that lead to bigger crimes. Does stopping a guy because of a bulge or something? I don't know. You know, sometimes... I would do that. Other times I just let it go because you really can't tell. And I didn't want to ever be second guessed. Some people took that to the 10th degree, made it about race. I never looked at it that way. We were looking at it as in Crown Heights, what were the problems in the different parts of the neighborhood? So that's where I started. And then from Crown Heights, I went to Coney Island, which was the best time of my life. Coney Island, it was a great place at that time. It was around 2010. I got transferred there. There's a 60th precinct best time of my life. I learned many things there. It was almost like the place to work if you worked at the time in Brooklyn South, which is where, you know, I worked in Brooklyn South from Cronites to Coney Island. From there, I I want to hear why it was the best time. Give me some of that. Well, in the summer is always what we call the summer detail, Coney Island detail. So if you go on a boardwalk, you'll see there's numerous officers up there and there's the hot dog eating contest and, you know, Labor Day. It's a fun time to be there. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of things going on every night in the summer there. It's almost kind of like for a busy, active cop like me, it was always action. So you were running around and you could make arrests for this or write summonses for that. And that's what I was in my career. And you have to understand, there's no civilian complaints on my record. The record's clean. Okay, so to be as active as I was and yet not have any complaints on your record, that's a feat in itself. But I was involved in a lot. And I also, when I was at Coney Island, because from Surf Avenue on down to West 33rd, so it's from the start of West 8th where the precinct is all the way down to West 33rd, that is where the detail kind of covers this whole area on Surf Avenue. And it involved, there was also like uh, housing there and some buildings that had some nefarious characters, we'll say. And it was a lot of like buy and bust operations. So some people would do some like drug, the narcotics unit at the time would come by to do buy and busts. They would also have the old leave the bag out and see if anybody would take it because that was going on, a lot of larcenies. These were the kind of things that were going on. I like to float around the entire area. So that's why I'm saying like Coney Island was the spot. I was very friendly with the neighborhood. I knew a lot of people that owned the 7-Elevens and the gas stations, and they would call me to tell me, there's somebody here. Can you come by? I don't like that the person's here. I'd go by there and either talk to them or they wrote a summons never arrested anybody for it, but that's how it was. That's how I like to be in community policing almost, where you're there for the people. You serve the people, not them serving you. That's kind of how Caban and company viewed things, no matter how much garbage he's spewing out of his mouth. The guys are fugazi. Remember what I tell you. So then from Coney Island, which was the most glorious times of my career, I moved on to a place called Citywide Traffic Task Force. The unit there was a DWI unit. So I was a DWI enforcement guy. So I would pull people over on whatever violation it was to see if they were drunk or not. I personally led the NYPD and DWI arrest on multiple occasions as for one single officer. And I took pride in this because this was my bread and butter. I learned a lot. I mean, through 14 years, I lived in and out of court. So I was always down at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office or the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. I was always involved in arrests. But I never had any decline prosecutions either. Not for DWI anyway. And not for my own. Not oh my, my God, my you must have stories there. Yeah, there's plenty of them. So there was a lot of action that took place while I was at CTTF. I started making arrests now in Manhattan. So I started learning how Manhattan works. And you find out that each borough that you go to and you work in 
is a little different. So Manhattan works a little different than, let's say, Brooklyn, which works different than Queens, which works different than the Bronx, and then obviously Staten Island, which I lived in for a majority of my life, actually. I'm not from there, but I did live there. Staten Island operates more like the Richmond County Police Department. Anybody in the NYPD would understand what I'm saying. They're kind of like their own entity as the fifth borough, or the forgotten borough. But the other four boroughs, they're kind of linked together, but they don't operate the same, we'll say. So I learned a lot while I was in Manhattan, but yet again, I was like a busy bee out there. There was a lot going on. I did have fun all the way till 2020. That's when the riots started and all that other nonsense that was going on in the street. So from that moment on, things changed. Obviously, that was also the election year because that's when the original letter that was written to Internal Affairs about me was in late 2020. And it stated that I was security for Roger Stone, amongst other things. And this person, this individual, I know who they are, they were a cop, wrote on this letter that I was security and other things using pictures of me with Roger that were public for the last year or two that I was friends with Roger. Because I met him in 2018. So they took this, dumped it in this investigation. And then after January 6th, a blank letter was written once again with pictures from the last two years and then pictures from the day before on January 5th, which were also very public. And they stated that I wanted a civil war in this country. It was a blank letter. And from that moment on, my life got flipped upside down. You know, I was investigated. I was called into two interrogations, which one of them shouldn't even count because one of the procedures that Sergeant Jeremy Ornstein used is on my lawsuit. And who also used this in a different investigation, another one that he's being sued on right now. So he's being personally sued in two different cases for almost the same thing, falsifying evidence. What he did in my case was after the first interview, he had nothing. The only person he had spoken to who could have been a witness was one of the security guys that worked that day on January 5th for Roger as one of Roger's security. And he told them that I had no involvement in anything that happened prior to during and after January 6th. They said that I was even a mild citizen or something like that to that degree that I remember that I had written down from my trial. So they had no evidence of anything. I wasn't involved in anything. I've never been to the Capitol, never marched to the Capitol. So I had no involvement in this. So they still are obsessed with, he has to be guilty of something. So what does this gentleman do? He starts looking at this other person that was also, that they, they wrote down that worked for Roger. And they access this person's sealed records. And what I mean by this is, Rena, when you are arrested for any case, for anything, once your case has been seen through, meaning you make a deal, you do your time, whatever the case is, that is now sealed. The only way anyone anywhere can view this would have to be someone has to go to a judge and explain why they have to access your sealed records. Is it a parole officer? Does it have to do a parole? Is it another agency that wants to see your record because they want to see if you've done anything as they're investigating you? But they must go to a judge and explain this. That's not what Jeremy Ornstein did. Jeremy Ornstein just went on his computer and accessed the sealed records. While he was at it, he used this to then write up a Fugazi administrative subpoena. What I mean by administrative subpoena is if I'm being investigated for something criminal, you're trying to state that I was either a part of what happened that day, or you just don't like that I'm friends with Roger. That's not good enough. You must have a crime. You must be suspected or probable cause for a crime, which he didn't have. But what did he write? He wrote narcotics. So he wrote my name being, it's a narcotics investigation, and then an administrative subpoena, not a criminal one. So he went to one of these Fugazi deputy commissioners of trial, the NYPD, and then got this Fugazi subpoena and then presented this to my phone, to get my phone records, to get the security footage from the hotel in DC, which showed nothing anyway, to get the easy pass records, all of this crazy stuff. In the end of this, this is what he found out. Sal Greco did nothing wrong. Roger Stone did nothing wrong. Nothing that he was thinking ever occurred. He didn't take my word for it, but he dragged me down to another investigation where he told me through my phone records, he was accessing other people's shield records and stated, you can't speak to this guy because this guy did something in the 1980s because he accessed that person's shield record, which is a violating a court order. 
and a New York state law. And the court order was in from 2019. So that's what this gentleman, Jeremy Ornstein, did. Not to mention in the second case that I'm talking to you about were two brothers. They were a sergeant and lieutenant, I believe. Their last name is Nieves. You can look this up. It was in the Daily News a few months back. Jeremy Ornstein, what he did was he was wiretapping them. They arrested these two gentlemen saying they were involved in prostitution. What really was going on is as he was transcribing this, and he was illegally wiretapping them for longer than he should, he transcribed this the way he wanted to transcribe it. So when they were speaking about, let's say, a woman, they were saying that they were trying to order a prostitute to a party. They were actually trying to hire a dancer to a party. They actually spoke Spanish. So he falsified records and testified to this at a criminal trial where he was found not guilty. They found them both not guilty. They got their job back and they're suing him for malicious prosecution. Mr. Orenstein not only perjured himself once in that trial, but again at my trial when my judge and my department trial, when my attorney at that time asked him, narcotics, did you ever assume or did you ever believe that Mr. Greco was involved in narcotics? He answered no. Did they ever dull test me for narcotics, a drug test? No. So what's the purpose of writing narcotics? You're just drawing it up out of thin air? You're saying guilt by association. That's not a crime. That's the problem for Mr. Ornstein. This is what's going to be coming out to light very shortly in my own trial. So, Rini, you see how I've been dealing with all of this nonsense when really, when you're looking at me saying I'm such a dirty guy because I'm friends with Roger Stone and we were out at a legally permitted event back on January 5th, you want to call me uncompensated security. And then they also stated that I gave him misleading statements because I was saying I wasn't security. And it's all bully tactics because you're not allowed to say, I don't want to answer your question when they're questioning you because then they'll just terminate you on the spot. You have to answer the question whether it's ridiculous or whether you want to or not. It was never alleged to have been in any crime. There was no purpose for this investigation to begin with. So through this all, you're looking at a glass inside of a glass. And then there's a mirror in the glass because the real persons that are the criminals here are the ones investigating me, your mayor, your police commissioner, your chief of department. All of these people, his deputy mayor of public safety, the deputy, the deputy mayor of public, all these people are the ones running around that have done things that are dirty. And then they're trying to say, Sal Greco's the dirty one. That's basically the whole gist of my story. You look at what happened to me, all right? And the reason I'm suing them, and if anybody does want to help me, you can go to salgreco.com. You can click the support button. You could also buy, have some merchandise up there. Soon there'll be even more merchandise. But I am the story of what the average American citizen, this is what they go through. Many times you've been terminated for your job for some ridiculous reason that's basically unconstitutional, or they violated your civil rights like they did with mine. Or worse, maybe they're trying to put you in some criminal case that there's no criminality to begin with. That's who I'm representing. I'm representing all of you. I could have easily just given up and say, I'll go take a job. You know what? Let me call President Trump. He'll probably have a job for me somewhere. I'm not doing that here. Because you know what? I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm putting my two feet right in the sand and digging in and saying, no, I'm going to be the one to take these guys head on. The little engine that could now has gotten past their motion to dismiss. So now there's no way of changing what's about to happen because this will be at a trial. And either they go to trial or they offer me something. One or the other will happen here. But there's no more, oh, he's nothing. It's garbage. Sal's got no case. Don't worry about it because it is going through. That's the main point of this. Hell yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's changed how you view the law. Well, Rena, I used to be all pro-cop, all gung-ho, saying, you know, oh, the cops really... In the beginning, I said cops are never wrong, whatever. But now I see a lot that they do. Some of them are really heinously wrong. And I'll give you one example. Just in the NYPD alone in the last two weeks, or a couple of weeks, just a few weeks ago, everyone noticed that there was 4,000 insurrectionists, rioters, in Union Square. What they were doing, getting free PlayStation 5s, whatever it was that they were there to get. They were throwing pickaxes. They were beating each other up. They were grabbing cones. They were breaking cars. And then when the white shirts, the NYPD chiefs, so this is the upper management, I don't know how they got there first, they showed up and all of a sudden they're driven back by all these rioters all the way to the front of a store getting ambushed and thrown objects getting thrown at them from all angles. And they weren't doing anything. They called reinforcements. And those reinforcements took time 
to even finally put a finger on any of these people. Once somebody is violent, when you see them doing something or they're very testy with you, meaning they're testing you out, you must handcuff them. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. You can't, obviously you're allowed to protest and this is no longer a protest because these kids or whatever they were, not only were throwing things, they were throwing things at each other, they were fighting, it was pure chaos. But when they come and attack you as an officer, throwing pickaxes, you must make a stand. You either start making an arrest or just you know run, put your tail between your legs and say, it's over. Because that's what I saw. Now, fast forward to just a couple of days ago, in Staten Island, there was a protest in front of St. John's Villa Academy, which was one time a Catholic school, which is, I think, for girls. And now it became city property. I think they gave it back to the city. So they wanted to house 300 migrants there. Right across the street from there, and I know as I used to live in Staten Island, is a park for children. You have 300 migrants. We don't know where they're from. The cameras and the media always show, oh, there's the one mother and the daughter. And then when they come off the bus, it's all men. They're all men that's a military age. And they're all coming down. And you already heard of this. Some incidences that happen and there's rumors of things that happen in the hotels. These people don't really know English, don't have any skill set. They're unvetted. God knows if they have COVID, whatever else they bring in, nobody's checking on them. So they started protesting in the neighborhood once. They don't want them there. They're outside yelling and screaming, and they have every right to. Here come the police. They set up the barricades. All of a sudden, though, the muscles get flexed. So what do they start doing? They grab one guy, like try to take him over the guardrail. Then when they move the guardrail to people, because the police moved all the way back to a secondary part of where the other guardrail was, they came charging and wanted to handcuff people. Where was that a few weeks prior? So when it's not aggressive, meaning these people are just peaceful people, they want to flex their muscles to look like tough guys. But when they're very aggressive, they want to run and hide with their tail between their legs and say, we have nothing to do with it. You can't have it both ways. That was a breakdown in public safety. And there's only one person to blame yet again, Mayor Eric Adams. These are the rules from the top. He doesn't want to seem too aggressive on these people because these kids that were doing that, they're all probably families of progressives. These are the people that voted for him. So we can't be hands-on with the progressives, but the conservatives back in Staten Island, anything, if they even look at you the wrong way, go after them because that's what this looked like. Anybody who was looking at it can see that. And that's why I have a problem with the police department of today because you're a cop and it's one standard. There's one standard. There is no I'm showing up here and I'm going to do things based on a political feel or, you know, I'm going to do this because I was given an order or you can't be hands off and only wait to the last minute to start making arrests in a full blown riot. And when people are peaceful, here you come charging the scene and throwing people over a guardrail like they just spit on you. I mean, I watched another officer. He grabbed someone that was behind another guardrail and the other officers were screaming, told them something and he finally just walked away. You can't do that when they're peaceful. You have to understand the circumstance. These people are peaceful. And they're very upset that these strangers that God knows what they want to do are coming to your neighborhood. But, you know, they weren't doing it. I don't know if it's, once again, the Richmond County Police Department is what we used to call Staten Island. I don't know if that's what they do out there. And that's not how they handle it in Manhattan. But you notice there's two standards for how they handle things. And there's where I have a problem. Because you can't be very hands-off in one situation and wait only till the last minute to put your hands on someone and be very hands-on in a situation where people are not even violent. That's the story of the police department today. That goes on in many other jurisdictions and other districts that I've seen. I've seen the same kind of scenarios where cops, I guess, are afraid. They probably second guess themselves. They're probably worried about, you know, losing your pension or... But I say this, I wasn't afraid of what happened to me. I wasn't afraid of losing my job or my pension. You have to stand for what's right. And maybe if you lose your pension, that was what was right. Or maybe that was what you were intended to do from up above. Maybe you make a statement because the way things are going in this country, Rena, maybe there won't, will not be a pension for anybody anymore. You don't know that. Look at the way it is. So that's how I see it. And I used to be, you know, very much 100% pro cop and back to blue. And then I'm I'm saying now that I'm using the old Ronald Reagan philosophy, trust but verify. Would you even still want to be a cop today? I don't know about getting in uniform again. I mean, it could definitely be a liaison or, you know, somebody, maybe a director or a commissioner or something like that, where I could kind of teach these guys how to do it the way I did it. Every move I made in the street, I felt like a lawyer 
I've been involved in so many cases that I know even the repertoire in the courtroom, what you would be asked, how they're going to ask it. So I would kind of tell you when you're a cop, you always have to think 10 steps ahead. Even if you're not, don't let the moment overtake you because the next thing will be, officer, what did you see my client do? Officer, did you see my client do this? These questions will come up and you'll be held responsible. So that's how I operated. So I would hope that these cops today kind of do the same, but I don't think they're being taught this at all. In fact, I actually kind of learned this as I went along. So that's the first thing I would tell them. And then obviously look at the room temperature around you. Obviously like a situation like I saw where there was a riot, I'm not saying you go in there and start pounding somebody's head because we don't violate people's rights. But if somebody's throwing a pickaxe at you or they come in to assault you, you have to push back because there won't be anything left to you. If you're worried about your pension, you got to worry about being alive, staying alive because a pickaxe can kill you. Throwing a cone at you, throwing rocks at you, that could this could permanently injure you you know, or worse. So you have to make a move. You can't just be reactive. You have to be proactive. And then there's a time when his people are peaceful. And that's when you just hang back, take a good look at everything, but just sit there and make sure that nothing happens. And you're basically monitoring their safety and the safety of everyone else around you. There's no need to go- start grabbing people over a guardrail that are not doing anything. So that would be more of what I would be, you know, entailed if I was to step back into law enforcement in any sort of capacity. When law enforcement goes to my kids' school, the kids always ask, have you shot anyone? So I'm going to give you that one. <laughs> no, I have not. No, no. I have really? Not no, I have not shot at anybody. No, never. Have you been shot at? Yes. Yes. How was that? What happened is you heard the bullet whiz by me. I think it was one or two rounds. I think they were aiming at someone else. It was back in Crown Heights. But as this gentleman was then running... I think he threw his weapon in uh, like the overhang of what this building was. One of the officers caught him and then they were able to go up there and find that the firearm was there. So they did capture the guy. I just If you're just standing there, which is why I'm not a big believer in this cop standing on a foot post because you want presence, but that leaves you as a sitting duck for like this kind of an episode because that's what happened. Another time there was a shooting from the roof. We don't know if they were shooting down at anyone on the street, but this was a 30-story building. They could have been shooting in the air, but it kind of went on for a while until aviation, which was the helicopter, shined the light on them onto the roof and that stopped. But it was going on for a little bit until they were able to get up there because no one could see who was doing it from what angle. So those were the two instances that uh, I've incurred that there were what we call shots fired towards me. Do you remember what went through your mind? I said, you know, I signed up for this. So if something happens, it happens. You know, it is what it is. If it ends this way, it ends this way. It's, you know. Another day on the job. Yeah, it's just another day on the job. You know, it's like and anything can happen as an officer. Some days there'll be nothing happens. Some days a lot of stuff can happen. So it's, it is what it is. That was the old saying on the job. It is what it is. Did you ever let anyone go from a DWI? Well, here's the thing. I used to be able to do an nystagmus test or I also had a portable breath test. So I would always be fair. When I let you come out of the vehicle, if you blow under that number of 08, I let you go. If you blow over that number, we might have to wait 15 minutes to see if you're actually going up or down. If you don't want to take that and I do the little nystagmus test and I see that your eyes, you know, they're moving when I move them from left to right, then you have to be arrested. You know, that then it's your DWI. But if you're under the limit, if you were a 06. You know, you're not even DWI, not even a DUI, because I think it was different boroughs had different rules. So 06.06 is a DUI in Manhattan. But in Brooklyn, it's 0.05 at the time. So anyone who was past the 05 was technically a DUI. But if you blew and you're under an 08, I have that discretion to say, you know, he wasn't driving under the influence. So there were plenty of chances I gave someone even when they were doing egregious things on the road, if you weren't drunk, you know, this one's on me for tonight. Just please worry about this in the future. I still believe drunk driving is one of the highest crimes available that you could actually do. It's that one of the highest crimes because your vehicle is used like a weapon. That vehicle you have is could be worse than a gun because you can barrel through a ton of people, as you have seen numerous times now. It's not really enforced anymore in New York the way it was. I remember when I was there, there were DWI units. And I was one of them. And before that, in the precinct, I was working every night in a regular shift with regular cops. Wasn't I was in a specialty unit and I was getting drunk drivers off the road. So 
I don't see as much emphasis on that today as it was prior to 2020. I've gotten one, so I know uh, the drill. Yeah. But right. I wasn't drunk. I mean, I was underage. So well, that happens. That's a big thing. Number one thing I noticed was a lot of people that are arrested for DWI, they were usually men. I could probably count the females I've ever arrested in my career on one hand. The most could be maybe seven or eight total. But all the men, how many of them were driving a car or a fancy car and there was somebody who didn't even have a drink either in the car or a female that they picked up that didn't drink. So that was always the case with a lot of these guys. They were always driving. They were intoxicated. The person that they were with wasn't, but somehow they decided that they had to drive. Why? I don't know. But that seemed to be a very big common threat in this, unless they were driving by themselves. But if there was someone else in the car, the chances were that other person didn't even have one drink. So I never understood that. I had a friend that was throwing up out the window and we were speeding home to get home by curfew. And uh, she threw up out the window and then I got pulled over because I was going over 100 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, that'll do it. Uh, speeding will do it. That'll do it. Yeah. I mean, are those usually combined? You know something? Late at night, the most common thing would always be, and it's even in an, I don't know how you do this on automatic, a car that has an automatic, the headlights. People don't drive with their lights on. People forget to use their signals at night. I'm talking about late at night. And then the other one where they're weaving. So you're not driving straight. You're kind of doing this. And, you know, I live in Florida where, you know, I come home sometimes from Miami and I'm not a cop no more. And I could point out already. I know that guy, that guy, this guy. I could tell you who's drunk right off the bat because they're all over the road. It's very dangerous too. This is after like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Look out in Miami. Do not be driving home because you know, you'll see this on a highway. They'll almost hit you. That's how drunk they are. It's clearly being drunk too. They're weaving all over the road. Maybe I should be teaching the uh, Miami, uh, whatever it is, Miami Police Department or whatever it is, the Florida Police how it's done. Because just like that, I could tell you that guy right there, this guy over there. Sometimes I remember it and then I forget and I go back to being, you know what? I'm just Sal Greco. That's a prior life now. It's a prior life now. I feel like there's bad drivers in Florida during the day too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everywhere. And I got to lie. I think out of all the states I've been to, many states, up and down the East Coast, West Coast, the driving down here is very questionable. Very questionable. Whether it's somebody going too slow or somebody going too fast, or well, the amount of drunk drivers I've seen, it's Florida's the wild, wild west when it comes to driving. That's for sure. Okay, well, this is the Better Call Daddy show, and I know that your dad is a big part of your story. So I want to talk a little bit about how he ties into what's going on with your trial. I know it. I want you to tell it, but it kind of breaks my heart that he passed away. And I mean, how did you leave it with him? How did he feel about what's going on with you? Well, I was close to my dad growing up, like around nine or 10 years old. He started bringing with me. I mean, he worked for a food distribution company. So he used to drive an 18-wheeler up and down the East Coast. He did it for a long time. And then he became almost like an ambassador for a different food company towards the twilight of his career. So I was young. I was with him day and night. Because remember, he's out all day driving to like, let's say, Virginia from Brooklyn, where we live. That's far. That's a seven-hour drive at least. So I was there all day and night with him. There were times where I didn't even go to school. I mean, I was a teenager. Sometimes my mother said, just go with your dad or whatever. And there were times that, you know, I was going in the summer and I was going when it was weeks off. So I spent a lot of time with my dad. So we growing up. And then I tried my own hand at one time in a business that really didn't work out before I became a police officer. So then I became a police officer and he stayed with his job, but he was doing, he was like an ambassador. And then he retired around when he was 70 years old. I was a cop back then. And I remember him telling me, you know, Sal, I don't know if you're going to like this. I know whatever you do, you've always excelled in, but this is something where, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know you know what you're doing, but just always be careful. I don't really want you doing this. I don't like this. Not because I don't think you could do it, but the people around you can't trust. Ultimately, his words ring true. I didn't know this, you know, unbeknownst to any one of us. Apparently, he had glioblastoma, which was brain cancer. So in that final year, I noticed that my father, he lived in Pennsylvania and I lived in Staten Island. So I couldn't see him all the time. I spoke to him about, you know, going back and forth. It's over an hour. Again. So I would see him. And in the last few months of his life, he kind of looked like he sometimes walked crooked or he was driving and he would kind of steer the car the wrong way. He kept saying he was fine. My father 
was an old school Sicilian. He came from Sicily, just like my mom, but he's an old school Sicilian. They didn't believe in doctors. He would go, but you would really need to just like drag him to the doctors. He did not believe in any of this stuff. He says, I feel fine. I'm fine. So he would do that. So he didn't have any problems other than this started coming up out of nowhere. So I spent the Christmas of 2020 with him. And uh, I remember telling him, I'll see you in a week or whatever, you know. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'd like to maybe meet Roger Stone in person. Because, you know, he follows all that Trump, Hannity. You know, he was a big Trump guy himself. And then I got a call right after, I think it was the first week of January, that my father was headed to the hospital and that they didn't know what was going on other than he couldn't like write his own name anymore. He was having trouble speaking. So it was hitting him all at once, apparently. He went there and they did the MRI on his brain and they said, you know, he's got a brain cancer, glioblastoma, and we're going to try to get it out. But they didn't know because his age, he was 76. So they did the surgery. They took as much as they can out without him. You know, it'd be permanent brain damage. It grew back in 24 hours. No. They said it's stage four. Yeah. And they said there's at this point, they gave him three to six months. But then, you know, if they would have, you know, had to do some like chemo, all this stuff. And my mother and my family decided that just put him in hospice. And they literally watched him deteriorate in less than a month. And he could barely, you know, he keeps nodding. I mean, he was losing it. Now, he went from perfect one day to all of a sudden he can't write or do anything anymore. I mean, he was saying some sad things at times because he knew it was over for him. And he got really sick. I couldn't go see him until a day before my own birthday because they weren't allowing anyone in the hospital because of the COVID restrictions in Pennsylvania. I guess my mother went to see him a couple of weeks prior, and they made a special thing for her to go there. She had to do all these tests just to let her in the building because it was against their rules. Everything else was on FaceTime. So that week, they had they said, okay, it's okay for the family to come, but they couldn't go because then guess what? My family, all of them, with the exception of me, had COVID. So now they weren't allowed to go to the hospital. So my father had spoke to her, and I guess, on the FaceTime, and he just wasn't doing good. So I went a day before my birthday, and as I was heading there, I live in Staten Island. So when you go to Pennsylvania, you know, I look behind my, in my rearview mirror, and I see a vehicle following me. So I'm like, can you, I can't believe this if I'm actually being followed because I'm going there. I want this to be on a record. I have never been modified or suspended in my career, ever. I always had my gun. The only time they took my gun away was prior to a surgery. I handed it in saying I might be on medication after the surgery. Other cops wouldn't do that. This was 12 years prior. So I've never had my gun taken. So if I'm such a bad guy, how was it that they never took my firearm from me? So as I'm headed to the hospital, I noticed that this car followed me all the way to Pennsylvania. And I finally get inside the hospital and my father is sitting there and, you know, there's not much life left of my father. This will now become his final hours because he ended up passing away just a few hours after I was there. While I'm there, outside the window is this guy waiting for me, watching me, whatever it is. And then later on in my discovery, I saw the evidence that it said they were monitoring me four separate times. They followed me or they were trying to follow me. This was the only time that they actually followed me because they caught me leaving my house. And the reasoning is, I may try to contact Roger Stone. How? I don't know. He lives in New Jersey. They were already monitoring my phones. They told me I can't call him. So I didn't contact him at all for till right before I was going to get terminated because we already knew that was going to happen. So I think I might have spoke to him in July or August of, of that year, of last year. So they followed me all the way there, all the way to his death. And it kind of caught the family kind of uh, off kilter, we'll say. There was never a funeral for him. He knew many people. And I couldn't even speak to anybody because my phone being monitored, they had already had written that one person, a gentleman that has a talk show, Frank Morano, he's on WABC radio. Underneath his name, they wrote no convictions. So they were running everyone's name, which is against, you can't do this. Unless this is a real narcotics investigation, which is what they were trying to make me out to be some drug dealer, I guess. So they put on there that he was, I guess, he had no conviction. So they ran his record. So if I would have called anyone that knew my father, 
unbeknownst to myself that may or may not have done something in their past that I have no idea about, they would have questioned me because they questioned me a month later for the second time. So all of this stress, everything that happened in my family, apparently they were watching my mother's house because my own nieces and nephew came over to me and told me back when this first started, there was a vehicle outside. My own father had told my mother, even in his last days that he was kind of still there. He had saw two people get out of a vehicle and come to the front door, but they never knocked on the door. And this car was there all the way up until I believe it was March. There's no record of this in my discovery, but I wonder if it was the NYPD or was it someone else? Was it a different agency? So all of this weighed a lot on not only me, but my own mother and my family to lose my father the way I lost them and not be able to have a funeral now you can't pay for anything. I had to worry about my own lawyers because I needed to hire them later on. This was a mess. And it was all because of what? Because I'm friends with a guy. That's all this was about. In the end, this is all political theater because there was never anything nefarious. There was never anything criminal. They just want to put the full weight, their might onto you, onto your family, make you feel it. And then maybe somehow you tell them something that never happened or tell them something to, to get yourself out of a problem. Of course, I never had a problem because I never did anything wrong, but that didn't stop them from using all these insane bully and unethical tactics to me and my family. And unfortunately, that's how my father passed away. And today he's in an urn at my mom's house. That's awful. Yeah. Do you think they're ever going to leave you alone? Probably as long as you're a friend of Roger Stone's, probably not. Probably not. You'll probably always be on their radar because what if? But in reality, there's nothing going on there. Everything Roger has done has been like, it's all politics. It's all First Amendment stuff. It's all legal. There's nothing illegal he's done. I know a lot of people, they say a lot of stupid things on Twitter. You had a documentary crew that did like some AI, CGI things. It's just, just some crazy stuff that go, I could tell you, I'm sat there I never purchased myself. I've never been found to be somebody that has mischaracterized something. I've never been found to be someone who lies about anything. I could tell you I'm sitting there. Roger doesn't do anything. He does political stuff. So anyone who's watching this, you really are foolish. I'm a cop. I've been involved with many district attorneys. I know how this game works. You're playing little games, calling journalists. I know what you're doing. It's all theater. People seem to be sucked into this. They get sucked into the theater instead of the facts. When you look at the facts, there's nothing there. It's all politics. As far as these crazy cases they have against President Trump right now, it's the same thing. You read the indictments, they use big fancy words that'll intimidate jurors to go the way they want because there's, in the absence of evidence, all you have is conjecture. They do this a lot. Prosecutors do this. I know this game. I've been involved in numerous different cases. The only difference with my cases were in a DWI arrest, it's me versus you. So it's what I've seen. There's only one person that needs to testify me. Any of these cases where you need multiple witnesses is usually a little, you know, gets a little cloudy, if you know what I mean. Because you're banking a lot on what Joe's going to say and what John's going to say. And, you know, they, they could change their story. What if something comes up where their credibility gets shot? That's your problem. I always like the one-on-one aspect. I arrested you on the fact that I saw you do X, Y, and Z. Then it was a body camera and a body camera said all. Once that camera came into play, I never had another problem again in every case. In fact, I didn't even make it to court because everything's on a camera. You can hear what I told them. You can hear what they said. You can see what I asked. Everything's there. And it's me against them. It's perfect. That's what I like. That's the way I think things should be done. The way they're doing the Trump things are very much take your word for this, using big words, saying he did X, Y, and Z, and fraudulently, or who's saying it's fraudulently? Who's saying it's fraudulently? He did X, Y, and Z. They're planting that so that when you read it as a juror, it's in your head. Versus a case like mine, where you don't have to say the word fraud. You'll know, defendant so-and-so blew a point. One five into the breath of life, like you know it. See the difference? People don't know this unless you're in law or you're a lawyer. They know exactly what I'm talking about. We all play the same games for many years. It's really a disgrace what's going on. I really, I wish they would just go back to what I knew as a cop, where you stick to defending the law and the Constitution and not making things about politics. Politics is almost driven a divide in this country when law and order and that kind of stuff should always stay in the middle and just stay out of it. You don't weaponize law enforcement 
for your further advantage of whatever gender it is, whether you're Republican or a Democrat. It's just that's supposed to stay on its own. I, you need to defend people no matter what, not weaponize them for your agenda, which is what's going on today. I think that's the biggest glaring point that I see out there. Maybe you should become a lawyer. You know what? I mistakenly have never finished college or something like that. I would redo it and say I should just go into law or just go to law school or something, you know, where I could, but it's, that would take a lot of time. But I, I know the court system very well, I, you know, I, spending a lot of time there. I know exactly how this works. It's such a shame, though, that it's gotten to this point that we're at where, you know, conjecture and kind of where you want to point someone in a certain direction, that's the way they're going to go. It used to be you needed facts. What are the facts here? You don't need to use big words, fraudulently, false. No, you just present it. Here it is. It's pretty much clear as day. This is very murky, shady, political nonsense to me. It's a lot of fodder. If you blow a 0.015, should you lawyer up? Most definitely, yes. And hope that that person can lower whatever it is that's coming your way. But I could tell you, I know that usually the offer that they give you from your arraignment is never changes. Their boss might make it worse by saying, you know what, this guy's wasted our time for so long. And hey, I know the other end of this. Some defense lawyers like to call up that prosecutor and say, you know what? I can't make it this day. Can we make another? Because he knows that maybe he could draw a little bit more money out of that client. So just to let you know, folks, it's a game. And unfortunately, you're not supposed to be playing it, but you're playing along as you're really the victim of it all. Yeah. You know, dealing with lawyers isn't fun either. No, no. Well, they say lawyer, liar. It's the same thing, right? That's why I have a conscience. I don't know if I could be a lawyer. I'd be more better as a, an advocate, maybe a special counsel, to, but I, to, to point out the reality of, of things. Because sometimes, you know, a lawyer, you know, they, they like to do things or whatever benefits them, their pocket, or maybe, you know, they love that attention also. People like being in front of the camera. I was never one of those people. I mean, now I am because yeah, I've been thrusted into it, but- a lawyer loves the camera, loves the spotlight. I was never one of those people. I mean, I liked that I was the, one of the top cops or whatever, but I never stood up there and said, I'm the best. Uh, I, I never did that. I let everyone else do that. They'll say whoever is the best. But the lawyers love to be in front of the camera. So that's how that works with them. So you should just take a sort of breaks down when you notice something like that. And I, I see that a lot in politics these days. Do you think if you took just like a friend break from Roger Stone, they might leave you alone? Being a Sicilian, we don't take breaks like that from our friend, but he's Sicilian too. It's your ride or die till the end. I mean, that's how it was. My father was the same with his friends. You would say, you know, legally speaking, no one's done anything wrong. Politically speaking, they'll always come at you with some nonsense. And it's because it's not what it was back in the day. That's why. I mean, many people would forget that Joe Biden was good friends with, what was that, the grandmaster of the KKK or something like that, or Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton, you'll, you'll forget about this. I mean, it should be out there, but now you see how no one remembers this anymore. But today, they'll just keep pounding you with the same thing over and over again. Joe was pictured with John, therefore, you know, guilt by association, blah, blah, blah. They'll recycle this 90 days later. It's the same thing over and over again. Being a cop, you never recycle anything. The only time you recycle something with it's criminal. I know that Joe was convicted of blah, 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 even though you shouldn't know that, but sometimes they'll spew it to you. So when his second case comes around, whatever you have with him now, you know, if he gets found guilty, your sentencing would be like, these are the things I'm looking at. They're actually factual. Today, they're more of, again, it's conjecture and lies and spin. The spin is what matters, the spin of it. That how it goes. I can understand with sports, you know, a lot of sport guys like to talk a lot of smack. They move around the stuff. But when it comes to your freedoms, your right, that's where I, I draw the line. There's a lot of time you'll notice I won't go beyond a certain, I just don't feel it's right. Anybody can, but I won't. Yeah. Speaking of that, there's always two sides to every story. What are you not sharing? I'm sure people want to know what are you not sharing? What are you not allowed to talk about? Like just generally, or do you feel like you've said what you could say? I don't hold back. Everything I'm saying is not only truthful, you'll find out what I'm saying is true if you take a good look or just know, you know, I don't like to lie about anything. There's nothing I hide. Could I have misset, like you said, him instead of them or something? That could happen as you're speaking. But, you know, categorically speaking, it's going to be all found to be true. I'm not really have anything to hide because everything's public other than the stuff that other people that are accusing me of things are hiding. And when you're saying 
well, Saad Breckel's guilty of this because, well, actually, no, you were guilty of this and you're being treated different than me. So I don't care if it's you're saying because the police commissioner, well, that's his brother. No, false. That rule doesn't say there's an exception for your brother. Oh, Cardi B comes to the police academy and she's hobnobbing with people. Yes, she's a convicted criminal. And yes, she's a gangbanger, as she says herself. And she's hobnobbing with cops. Oh, well, you know, that was because it was a court order. No, it wasn't court order. There was no court order. And the mayor himself stated in his press conference two days after that she was invited. He wishes he was invited also to see that. And then we don't discard people. Well, Mayor Eric Adams, how come you don't discard people, but you discarded me? And that's the question here. All I'm doing is when you see a bunch of cockroaches in the dark, you can't see them until you shine a light. Then you watch cockroaches scatter. They don't like light, if you ever noticed that. So... That's the main point. When you see the cockroach, shine a light on them and they'll run. It's the same thing here. That's all I'm doing is shining a light. And then everyone out there can make their own decisions. Or maybe they want to press forward and say, hey, police commissioner so-and-so, whatever, they've wronged me. You know what? I should take them to court. Because they start seeing some action, you're going to see a lot of this go on from them. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Damn. All right, let's end with that. Is there anything you want to ask my dad? SalGreco.com. Yeah, well, like I said, if you want, you go to SalGreco.com. I do have my merchandise there. I'm selling things there. I post different blogs. I'll probably be posting this up there shortly, you know, once you release it. And then I also, if you want, you can click the support button. You can help me out if you feel like you want to help me out with anything and send me a little donation to help. You can also follow me on Twitter. At the Sal Greco, the same as Instagram, at the Sal Greco, and on Truth Social, it's at Head of the Table. Okay, one final question. Who introduced you to your love of cigars? And have any like cigar companies reached out? I've had a few of them reach out. I'm friends with Patriot Cigars. That's Alan Jacoby. I'm friends with Alan, so I do push his cigars. I kind of like the Cuban cigars. I'm a Cohiba guy. Very not easy to get your hands on that, obviously, because you got to pay big money to get that overseas. But I'm a Cuban cigar guy, and I think that started a very long time ago when I was in the food business. My old friend, he, he introduced me into these cigars, which were not that good. Romeo and Juliet, they were actually terrible. So I started smoking those. Then I kind of laid off for a while, and every now and then I'll have one. And then Roger loves having cigars. He either has one every you know once a week, maybe at night, maybe every other day. But once he started having it, then we started having like cigar lounge meetups with people like our friends or if it could be, uh, you know, a politician, we'll say, and we'll all go to cigar lounge together. We did it in Las Vegas this weekend. It was Roger's birthday. So we went to the cigar lounge together. So that's a kind of like situation. That's how I like to do it. Cigars are nice. It kind of relaxes you. I like the lighter cigars these days, that Maduro and all of that. I can't do that anymore. Kind of like when I eat my pizzas, I can't have the 16-inch pie. I can't finish that pie anymore. So I need a 14-inch and maybe I need to share a few slices because I just can't eat like that anymore. But that's my love of pizza. That's where it comes from. I came from the food business. I know it very well. You know, So I used to sell all the products at a pizzeria. So that's why you see me always eating pizza. I do know what I'm talking about. Not to I toot my own one. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the Better Call Daddy show. This has been amazing. Well, thank you, Rena. Thank you, everybody out there. You know, for everyone who has supported me, I really appreciate it. And trust me, what I'm doing is not just for me, but for everyone. It's kind of like the shine the light on the cockroach approach. And so I say like this. So for everybody, God bless you all. Thank you for your support. I love you all. I'm going to keep fighting this all the way to the end until I see it through. Because I believe in my heart, when someone doesn't do anything wrong, you stand for what you believe and don't be afraid of it. I love that. And my dad will definitely love that too. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. All right. So this is your interview with Sal Greco. And it almost sounded like a mafia movie. But the truth of the matter is, is that the politics in New York have been corrupt for a couple of hundred years. The reason why you know about it more today than before, maybe, is because we have communication instruments that bring it all out. But it also means that the political fight between the radical left and some extremists on the right, <laughs> it's like a street fight or a mud wrestling. And if you're caught with certain people that are in that category, 
it's vicious. It's fight to the death. And Mr. Stone, who is a Trump supporter, no doubt, but he's one of the type of people that is also one of these street fighters. Donald Trump is a street fighter. The point is, is that we've done business with Donald Trump. He's very fair and he has high expectations of delivery on time and top quality work and rewards people with further contracts if they do the right job for him. So there's an attraction to Donald Trump because if you are meeting him and doing business with him, he's giving you the, a chance to fulfill the American dream. But the fact is, is that just about every politician out there is promoting themselves. And Donald Trump turned out to be quite a threat to him. And he doesn't really let any adversities bother him. He figures out a way to get around everything. And the Democrats have no problems attacking him now on every single variable of his life. Now, as you know, I have a lot of experience in being attacked myself and where uh, they tried to get to everything that you did in your life, even some of your accomplishments, they twist it around to make it sound like you've done everything wrong, whether you're successful or not. It was done wrong. Okay. And Sal fell into a situation where something went really bad on January 6th. And all of a sudden, guilt by association is putting it mildly, but he's friendly with someone who's been a very strong advocate for Republican Party fighting dirty Democrats. So, like I said, he's just a mud wrestler. And and by being associated with a mud wrestler that has fought the Democratic Party, I don't know, for 30 or 40 years with every trick in the book also, the Democrats do the same thing against him. And anyone that might be associated with them has got to be a crook. And the problem with the FBI and the problem with investigation systems that we have in our country have become politicized where the Democrats are going after Republicans and Republicans are going after Democrats where the truth doesn't even matter anymore. They twist it to the point where no matter what you've done, you've done it wrong. And both parties want to lock all their political opponents up. And you think that it hasn't been uh, enormous corruption with the Clintons or with the Bidens versus the attacks that they're making on uh, Trump and his people? I don't know. I think we have to be blinded if we don't understand that the viciousness and the type of attacks against both parties and uh, there's Democratic senators and congressmen, as well as Republican congressmen and senators. It seems that even though this is still the best country in the world, but our corruption is still pretty high. It's maybe not as terrible as living in Russia or living in some of these other countries, third world nations of corruption, but it's not where we're a class ahead of them. We certainly have a lot of dirty underwear. Now, lawyers also play a lot of tricks and games in order to get people off or guilty or to find them guilty. Even our court system, which is still the best in the world, has a lot of problems because we're not necessarily interested in the truth. We're interested on winning and losing the truth. I know that sounds ridiculous, but the truth is only as good as you can be defended or as good as your attack against someone. And to make all this fabrications and lies and stories are just to try to win your case. I think it's very good that Sal mentioned also that policemen really need also understanding and training better of what the system is and where they should be learning how to defend right from wrong and understand a certain situation, not to blow it up. Sometimes force is not the answer, but it's also we can't be intimidated and let people just walk all over us as well. So it's really a very tough job because a lot of times there's people that go into being a policeman and some of them are just also got their adrenaline uh, flowing and their testosterone going where they're bullies and they're nasty and they're not nice. And yet you have other policemen that are understanding and really are there to protect the neighborhood or the community. And you need a network relationship where the police and the community 
back each other up on seeking truth and justice for everybody. And we were looking to have peace, but it's not an easy job. But I do know what Sal is going through, and I do wish that he is successful in pointing out some of the corruptions and the attacks by people on him are just trying to deflect the attention of some of the bad politics that is really being played. And he's really a victim of it. And I'm very proud of him that he's fighting desperately to say, hey, I'm not going to make a deal. I'm not going to compromise who I am. And not only that, but I'm going to try to set an example to give other people an opportunity that if they're attacked maliciously and politically, that there is ways to fight all of this. And as you know, I'm certainly in that camp. And I know what it is to be attacked by the government. I know what it is to be attacked by politics. I know what it is to be attacked by my own family. And yet I stand up and try to do my very best to network and help all the people that have been surrounded in my life, whether it's been in the workplace or with family. And yet, even though I would like to think that the record has proved that I've done an incredible job, it can be twisted where instead of it being an incredible job, it can be twisted where that I also have been looked at like I'm just a piece of dirt or a piece of duty underneath your shoe, okay? So it's quite a rude awakening to understand that uh, human beings, we make mistakes, we have problems, but the fact is, is that we can be just accused and annihilated by society and at the same time also be looked at as a hero for doing certain things and it's the same person. It's really incredible how some people can be looked at as a hero and also being some type of evil monger at the same time by other people. Just incredible to me. And hopefully Sal can redeem his name and he's a very proud person. And I think that he brings up a lot of elements that we have to not take anything for granted. We really got to make sure that the people that you're associating with are really going to be true to you. And loyalty is, you know, a big thing in my dad's life also, where loyalty was worth everything. And it just seems today there's a lot less of that and where everyone is just out for themselves and what kind of political gain you get out of it. And they're not interested in the casualties of it and what it really does to other people and other groups. So let's hope that he's able to circumvent some of these terrible accusations that have been made and that we can figure out a way to have truth and peace win out at the end of the day. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. (laughs) I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.